This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. It's the Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today I've got with me the director of Battle Mountain, Dave Street. This is kind of a sequel that I didn't plan, um, but having met Dave at a Q&A that I hosted were for, the, for a screening of Battle Mountain that was at the Hackney Picture House, um, I felt it'd be a good partner piece to last week's Graham Aubrey interview, who was obviously the subject of Battle Mountain. Now, the reason also for this uh, long um, intro, which I don't normally do, is that we almost like picked the button up from from when we were talking at the picture house to recording the podcast. So um, I didn't feel the need to do sort of a kind of false intro to the conversation. So here is the intro to my podcast conversation with Dave Street, director of Battle Mountain. Over to me and you, Dave. Good morning. Good morning, sir. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm all right. How was uh, Brighton? Absolutely amazing. Was it? Uh, absolutely. Um, just, just unreal. <laughs> um, th- when the film finished, they were whooping and hollering and cheering and and, and God knows what. And you know, when Graham got up and went onto the stage, it, it was just, it, it was amazing. I guess, um, I guess that's one of the things that once you get out outside of outside of London, where and if, this is an this is an event, then isn't it? Really? Yeah, and they, I mean it, it was unreal. People were coming up to us, well, coming up to me afterwards, sort of almost in tears, sort of saying, "Thank you so much for making that film." And you go, "What?" <laughs> you know, it's, and I mean it wasn't just once or twice. You know, I mean it was, there was a stream of people. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. And it, 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 mind blowing, absolutely mind blowing. You couldn't get. I mean, it was the biggest cinema we've played it in, or the biggest space we've played it in. Hmm. And I sat right at the back on in the balcony, hmm. and it looked really small on screen. Whereas the night before at the Lexi at Kensal Rise, in that very small space, yeah. It had looked huge, you know, it had looked epic sort of thing. And so there's a real, real understanding of the difference in spaces when it gets to cinemas and things like that. And, you know, how you want it to play and what you want it to feel like and what have you. But at at the end of the day, the audience sort of howled with laughter in all the right places. Um, I mean, it was a 200 and... Two hundred thirty or two hundred and fifty seat cinema, yeah. and felt full. You know, I mean, there were obviously spaces, but it felt virtually full. You know, um, 
So you, you on a Monday night at quarter, uh, half past six, um, you know, in in essentially what's in many ways a commuter town uh, now, Brighton for London. So you know, lots of cyclists wouldn't have even been back home by the time. <laughs> Well, look, let's let's keep this let's keep this going. Usually, I'd, I'd have a preamble before I start recording, but I've recorded all that, so let's capture that energy. But let's okay. tell let's tell people what we're talking about. Then we're talking about the documentary Battle Mountain, Graham Oldbridge's story, which listeners to the podcast will have heard me speak to Graham, the, the who's the subject of the documentary, and you are David Street, the director of the documentary Battle Mountain. Do you? One of the things I didn't get out of uh, Graham, you'll not be surprised to learn, was. What was the documentary about? So do you want to give us a brief synopsis as to what Battle Mountain is from your point of view? Battle Mountain, uh, Graham Overy's story, started off as a, a literally documenting Graham building a machine to have a go at the international human-powered land speed record in America. Hmm. Um this is a, essentially a bicycle-based event where um, athletes, people build machines and then try and try and break records on them. Hmm. And Graham, famous for building the Old Faithful in the 90s and becoming a world champion twice over, a world record holder twice over, things like that, so many British and commonwealth records it's untrue um after sort of what he calls his 10 lost years decided mm. he wanted to have another go at a record and so ah, okay. um i would set out and document that because i've got a fascination for telling people's stories and that especially stories that generally don't get told or get told to my mind, not quite in the right way that I would like to see them told. And how, uh, how did you and him end up in a room to be talking about the possibility of coverage? <laughs> Charlie, his manager and confidant friend, um, I mean, that, that's a, a relationship that's not precise in, in a sense. Yeah. Um, I thought that there might be, there might be a film in it. Okay. And so we we talked about it and looked at it. And initially we wanted, uh, we were hoping that uh, we could get a commission from TV because until until this film, I'd only ever done TV. Right, okay. Um, and so we hoped that we could get a commission for it. And sadly, but in some ways understandably, none of the commissioners wanted it. Um, I think their fear probably was Graham's... Uh, history of sadly mental illness. Hmm. They, I think they, they were worried in these austere times that they might end up losing whatever money they put into it because the film wouldn't get finished. So uh, the inverse of that, then, why, why did that not scare you? Because I'm an idiot. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> no. There's, it, it's a challenge, isn't it? I mean, yeah. it, it, it really is. It's a challenge in its own right. Um, my feeling was I've got my own camera equipment, I've got my own sound equipment and things like that. I've, I've got a little stock of kit that I've built up over the years while I've been doing TV. Yeah. And so I thought all I'm going to waste is my time. So I can do that at this stage. I can keep following him and see what happens and go down and film. And to be honest, 
being in the presence of a genius, not just on a uh, athletic level, but also on a design and engineering and build level, yeah. it's very, very rare. Well, across both subjects, I think is probably unique. And certainly at that level, a world record-breaking level is, is unique. So you don't, as a documentarian, you don't pass up that sort of opportunity, you know, if, if, even if you've got no money. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're saying. It's, um, yeah, that's, it's one of the things that completely baffles me when you, when you watch the documentary is, is, A, his approach isn't grounded in anything that resembles what we know as science, given what the TV has told me people do when they design stuff. Um, and B, he doesn't, and you don't reveal, any background in engineering full stop. So we know from the world record breaking that he's a fantastic cyclist, that goes without saying. We know that history's told us 20 odd years ago, he did it on a bike he built himself. So here he is again, embarking on a process which he doesn't seem qualified for, but instinctively he, he is, and I guess that's what you were seeing with your camera. Yeah, totally. I mean, he, I, I <laughs> at one point, maybe after about six months, I insisted on him showing me right round his flat, because he, he hadn't shown me, I mean, it's only, there were only three rooms, but he'd never shown me into his bedroom. Mm. And I was really worried that I was getting taken for a ride. And that hidden away in his bedroom, he'd got a real brilliant computer CAD design system and all this sort of thing. Really? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, he was coming up with this stuff. Yeah. And he was doing this stuff that beggars belief in many ways <laughs> that somebody can do it in their own mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And because I'd done so many sort of investigative docs for, you know, be the Beeb and Channel 4 and, and things like that, yeah. you, you get you build a sense of paranoia, don't you, when you're doing those so you, you, you were looking for the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain? Yeah, I mean, and, and, <laughs> and I, I, I asked him to, to show me round, and he, I promise you, he has nothing. <laughs> Everything is done in his head. I mean, it's, it's remarkable. And that's, I mean, I tried to capture that, or I tried to allude to that. The... the, the, the in the longer story of the design and the build, there are lots and lots of shots of his eyes and, you know, as in, have been looking at stuff and things like that. Mm. But as, as the film got more rounded and we told more of his personal story and, and things like that, um, those sort of shots and those sequences sort of fell, went to the cutting room floor, really. I mean, I think, I, know, I, should, I should tell the listener, you and I met, recently to this podcast at the London, one of the London screenings at Hackney Picture House. I did, I hosted the, the Q&A. And, we and brilliantly, thank you. Oh, my, my pleasure, my pleasure, really enjoyed it. But it is, but you, but what's clear, and that's not a surprise, obviously you and Graham are very different people. I mean, I'll just give the audience, for instance, so here we are at a London screening of the film, and obviously, and I meant, I've, I've ridden down my bike and I mentioned to Graham that my me, me front crank was creaking. Well, I, I can't, well, you won't surprise you. Within 20 seconds, he was outside looking at my bike and wanted to have a ride of it. And I said, look, you've got your screening in 20 minutes. I don't need to fix my bike. <laughs> yeah, no, that's he, that's his, he, that, that would be typical. Um, he, I, 
I don't know. Does he love bikes more than anything else? No, he loves his sons more, probably more than anything else. Well, he loves his sons more than anything else. But I, I think bikes come a very close second or third, if you see what I mean. Mm. But but as, as, uh, with that kind of sort of almost like flitting from one thing to another, almost like that's the thing I'm going to do now. How did you as a documentarian, it must have been like juggling water at times. It wasn't the easiest process. I mean, the the deal that we had mm. was, he, when I asked him, first of all, if I could make the film, he said no. Oh. Um, there's no way that he could put up with cameras and things like that. And I, I went into it and he we talked about it and he'd been on the set of the flying scotsman because he taught johnny lee miller how to ride he built the bikes that johnny lee miller rode in flying scotsman all this sort of thing yeah so he'd been on the set of a mega budget um narrative feature film he'd seen them he'd seen johnny having to wait and wait and wait for makeup and for lights and for sound and for resets and focus and all this sort of thing. He'd seen him having to do stuff sort of 17 takes and things, and he just said, that's impossible, I can't do that. And I said, whoa, slow down. It'll be me, my camera, my sound equipment, there'll only be me there, and I promise you faithfully, I won't ask you to do anything for the camera. The only thing I'll ask you to do is stick a radio mic on when I walk into the room, or when I walk into your house, and then we'll go for it. Mm. And that, so that was the basis that we agreed to do it, and that was the way the film was shot, and how the whole film was shot. It was nothing ever, he never waited for the camera. And, and the first couple of times I was down there, I said, so talk me through what you're going to do today while I was putting the radio mic on. Mm. and he would say, oh, well, we'll do this, and then we'll do that, and then we'll do the other. And within, and I just not, within 30 seconds, he was doing something completely, totally, and utterly different. <laughs> so I stopped asking him, and I just thought, it's pointless. I've got to just go with the flow. And so I think it gives a sort of energy to the film in a way that, you know, there's a rawness and a speed and an energy and, and, and you know, so obviously as a as a director, the stroke cameraman, some of the stuff in there, mm. um, you know, if I'd been shooting with an ordinary camera, a, a real cameraman, yeah. they would have said, you can't have that, you can't have that, because it makes me look bad sort of thing. Yeah. Whereas... Um, for me, I just sort of think I've got to have that shot in, even though even though um, I, it doesn't do me any favours as a cameraman. It tells that bit of the story so well that it's got to be there. Yeah, I think I, think, I mean and maybe that's kind of one of the one of the main advantages, I suppose, of documentary as opposed to sort of story narrative, as it were, when you're doing acting and things, is that. You're you're there to capture the moments, not just the shot. And the shot, maybe as you've described, there can get overridden by what you need to capture is the moment. Yeah. Um, now, what was interesting is um, is you go you go the, the the documentary goes to dark places in terms of in terms of Graham's last twenty years or so, and certainly is his formative years as an adult and discovering his own mental health issues and stuff. How, how long into the documentary was that? Did that become part of the conversation or did that become, was that always part of the conversation? No, the, the original conversation, what I got 
what I got Graham's agreement on originally was the, um, you know, was making, if you will, uh, a very much a, a process film about him building his bike and going to ride it. Yeah. Um, but the more I, the more time I spent with him, the more time I listened to him and his thoughts and his ideas and his philosophies and things like that, the more I realised that we had to tell a bigger story. Lots of people had seen Flying Scotsman and thought that's what Graham was, and they'd read his autobiography, yeah. which I also called the Flying Scotsman. And, and I don't think either of those did him complete justice. Okay. And, and I and I wanted to, I wanted to have a go at doing him more justice in a sense because I think he's a, he's a very funny guy mm. and he's got a great sense of humour and neither the book nor Flying Scotsman had many laughs in it and one of the great things about last night at Brighton was hearing a nearly full cinema in you know belly laughter coming through <laughs> the cinema at some of the stuff that he does. Mm. And he's he's just so naturally witty and funny and amusing and warm <clears throat> that I wanted to bring that out and also contrast that with the struggles that he's had in his life and how, you know, how he's got over those struggles and where he's, he's come through. So in many ways, I think it's a, a multi-layered film mm. um, with, you know, with full of contrast, sort of the, him talking about suicide and things as he's riding through the beautiful Ayrshire countryside. Yeah. I think for me anyway, is, is quite poignant and, 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 a, and, a, and a wonderful juxtaposition. No, and I, th I think juxtaposition is a, is, a, is a good word for, for a lot of what you do with the film, certainly where you sort of overlay Graham talking with maybe a not direct image. I think we get a sense of there being more than more than one Graham. I don't mean that in the kind of mental health sense. No, no. I, just, I mean, and I think you're right. I think the, the sense of humour is a very important part because I remember my experience of watching, and I said this to Graham when we did the podcast, you know, I was new to cycling in 2005 and in my thirst for cycling, Flying Scotsman, a film comes along. So I go and watch it and I come out of the film going, that was a film about mental health issues. It wasn't about cycling yeah. at all. Um, yeah. A very sad film made me cry, but it never prepared me for the conversation I had with him a couple of weeks ago, which is this man who's like an absolute ball of energy, and and he can laugh at himself. I think that's the that's yeah. the important thing here, isn't it? I think I mean that's a very I mean I come from the northwest and, as you do, and and I don't think that that, that sort of areas of Scotland are made different. That whole kind of gallows humour to yourself is an important part. I Important means of survival, isn't it? Mentally yeah. and physically, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and but you but you also convey that in the in the film without it needing to be him. It said, I mean, just, this is not a spoiler, I hope, but but and I won't give the payoff. But that opening moment where you so the transition you go from telling us, look, this is what we're aiming for. Here we are, Battle Mountain, this desert open space in America. Now back to Graham's kitchen. And he's yeah. rolling out a piece of wallpaper and drawing up the pencil. There's a payoff to that, but I won't spoil it for those that haven't seen it. But in that moment, and I bet you're in Brighton, given what you've said to me, that got a whole belly laugh in the room, because certainly it did It did for me when I was at, uh, at Hackney watching it. And you realise that this is this is not the normal way of going around making a, breaking a world record. 
Yeah, and I mean, talk about serendipitous moments Mm. and um, just being so fortunate to have a camera switched on and not being absolutely rigid on everything, being totally in focus and perfectly exposed. Um, that was that is the prime example of it, okay. um, and and it's you know, but then to be able to the the joy of having the wide open spaces of Nevada as the claustrophobic. I mean, it was horrible in that kitchen. It was, I mean, it is so tiny, and you know, with but, him but, in ter- but in terms of film and the way film communicates with you, when you when you bring that camera into that kitchen. And the first thing we see is a is is a vice attached to the what is a well just a pine wood kitchen table. That's a joke in it's that's a brilliant joke in itself, isn't it? You know, yeah. it gives you an insight into him. Yeah. And it's like, no, he's he lives this. He doesn't just do it, he lives yeah. it. Yeah. No, that's I mean that that was one of the things that we were trying to get over the whole time. And that's the that you know, that it, it he lives like that and he lives in a tiny space like that. So no wonder he loves being out on his bike in the open. Mm. You know, I mean, it's that sort of that the beauty of the of the contrast between the two things. He loves. I mean, I mentioned this term, but I mean, I wonder. I wonder when, when it was you noticed it as someone that spent so much time with him, it, it, as well as having a sense of humour and being being open about his problems. He also is quite. He is quite the romantic, and he he, he loves he loves a metaphor, doesn't he? I mean, uh, I really sort of. I'm robbing it left, right, and centre. The idea that cycling is like a magic carpet ride out of town. Yeah, no, I mean he he does, but I mean in in a sense, well, not in a sense, he totally believes that, and that is it for him. I mean, one of one of the things that did come over, and I'm sure his his true friends know this and and won't mind me telling the story. He loves to ride on his own, right. And sometimes, and, and I didn't realise this, I thought he'd love to ride with people, you know, and natter and things. And he, he, he really enjoys riding on his own so he can soak up the sensuous nature of the wind in his face, even the rain and the hailstones on him, you know, the, the sunshine, the taking in the the countryside, the trees, you know, everything, nature. And he just loves that. And he loves being able to get out on his own. And and it was sort of quite a shock to me when one, he put the phone down one day when we were filming, he said, oh, I didn't want to go for a ride on Sunday. I wanted to go on my own. I I don't want to talk about bikes. I just want to go and ride. (laughs) You you know, and, and that's the... That's his thing. He it is a magic carpet to him. Do do you? I mean, as someone that is a world record holder, so which means that obviously, in terms of cycling, he is he's an icon of cycling. You know, he he was there at one of the many foothills that that becomes standards in ex, excellent standards in cycling. But yet, when you look at him in your documentary, you don't think you know. Look at from that from a shallow point of view. You don't look. You don't feel like you're looking at greatness. Obviously, that evolves from what you tell us. But how do you think? I mean, what is it about? How is he keep? How do you think he has that sense of groundedness, given how wonderfully talented he is? Well, I mean, he talks about it a lot, and in the Q and A's, he's talked about it a lot, and a lot of that is to do with his sense of 
his extreme low self sense of self-worth to start with. I mean, I think there was that. And the other thing is, after you know, after he'd been through some of his troubles and things, he was homeless for six months. Of course. You know, I mean, he he, you know, he it was it was the time that he he was famous and he got his world records and world championships and things before cycling was an event in the UK. Mm. You know, in many ways, him and, to my mind, to a lesser extent, Boardman, because Boardman had the backing of all the the big companies and the money and all that sort of thing. Graham was Graham was the person who made cycling acceptable and achievable for lots and lots of ordinary people. Mm. It wasn't a big, mad, expensive sport. You know, the the bike he built. The old faithful, uh, as the commentator says, he built for approximately a hundred British pounds. You know, <laughs> so even in the nineties, it wasn't. You know, it wasn't one of these bikes that had cost tens of thousands of pounds, and so he made it achievable. And, and as Chris Hoy says, you know, he, he Graham inspired him. He said, if a guy from Scotland can do this. And, uh, and win world records and win world championships, um, with no money and no backing, then I've got to give it a go. I mean, so in a sense, he was the real inspiration for what we've now got today. I know Brailsford and all, you know, the other people in, um, British cycling and things will say that they've done it and everything. Mm. But to my mind, Graham was the person but the you know who kickstarted it, who put the power in there, who did it? Mm. What do you think was your? What do you think was the? I mean, given given what you went into the documentary knowing about Graham or knowing of Graham, what for you was the biggest surprise? Oh, his sense of humour. Okay, with 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 without doubt, his sense of humour was the, the the first major surprise, and probably the biggest surprise. That, you know, here was a guy who was, who was a genius, who'd been through so much, so many challenges, so many difficulties and everything, but could still laugh at himself and the world mm. and could find fun and enjoyment in the simplest things and, uh, and, and get through that. And then I suppose just the capacity of his brain. Mm. You know, that was, I, I don't, I mean, I've been hugely, hugely lucky in my career to have met some brilliant, brilliant people and filmed some brilliant, you know, people, prime ministers, presidents, God knows what, down, you know, right the way across the board, Nobel Prize winners, everything. Yeah. I would doubt that any of them have got a brain the size of Graham's. And, and that was a, that was a massive, massive thing that hang on a minute and it's not just on the bike i mean it, it comes out more in the q and a's i think just sort of how um how broad his knowledge is how how wide it is and there was a, there was a moment was it in yours or was it in chris's i can't remember there was a moment <clears throat> in one of the q and a's where he was talking about the difficulty of riding the beastie. Mm. And 
it was an academic thesis on physics and balance. And you go, oh my God. Now, I couldn't have put it in the film because it would be, it would have just, people would have just said, you can't, you can't do this. You know, you can't, you can't put this in. It, it takes it too far away from a, uh, you know, from a broad audience sort of thing. But when, when you hear him do it like that, you just go, Jesus, this, this man really, really has got some brain on him. Now, I, when, I, when I saw it at the at Hackney Picture House, it was the third time I'd seen it, but it was also the first time I'd seen it on the big screen. And two things happened seeing it on the big screen that hadn't happened before was, and it's interesting, it's, it's, a, complete, an op, it's a complete opposite to what you were saying, the compromises you were making because you wanted the shot, not necessarily the best shot. Because also you do have some wonderful imagery in there which is very cinematic, and suddenly the film comes alive on the big screen like it doesn't on a small screen, um, which I think is a, a really re rewarding thing, given it's a it's a feature feature length documentary for that. Um, <clears throat> so, with in that in mind, then um, were you were you aware you were, were you, you you were capturing this, or was was this something that came out of the process of editing it that that these kind of bold, like, more, more artistic images that come, certainly come in more towards the end, um, and any time we're out in, in sort of the wider vistas, whether that be rainy Scotland or the desert of America. No, it, it was, it was totally intentional. Um, and it, it was, I mean, I would have loved to have had cranes and jibs and you know steady cams and god knows what to to make it even more cinematic and mm. and 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 bigger and better like that and made the contrast even bigger but because of you know the, the way we funded it and everything i couldn't do that yeah um but it was it was it was always the point to say here is a tiny little man from a tiny little village from a tiny little flat in Scotland, going to the massive United States of America. Yeah. On a machine he's built himself out of recycled metal, mostly, and other bits of recycled stuff, pitting himself against the biggest and best in this field yeah, I mean, some some of the teams out there spend hundreds of thousands of pounds. I mean, literally hundreds of thousands. Yeah. Um, and he was going to pit himself there. He was going to race a human-powered vehicle in, if you will, the gas-guzzling capital of the world. Yeah. Um, you know, the irony of that was just, was, I mean, beggar's belief in a sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so we got, there were so many lovely layers that we could work into it. And, you know, the, some of those trucks that you see going along the roads that he races on yeah. aren't going as fast as he was. <laughs> but because they've got more wheels and because they're bigger, they look as though they're going faster, but their speed limit is actually lower than what Graham did. Oh, yeah, 55 mile an hour, yeah, of course. Yeah. 
Now, the other bit that, that came that came home watching it in the cinema, and it's the unseen element of your documentary. Now, we talked about this at the Q&A, but obviously, if you, if you don't mind sort of repeating the story, I'd be very grateful. But is the soundtrack to the film really lends a character to the movie, which I think really moves you with the images that you've cut together? Yeah, well... Sort of because it was essentially first of all it was self-funded until the end of the uh, of all the filming. Then when I'd got three hundred hours of footage and I shot it all myself, mm. so I thought I needed another pair of eyes to cut it. Yeah. Um. And and to to come in and you know cut it and sort of kill babies if you will. Yeah. Um. Uh. And then we went to a Kickstarter, but that ran out really quickly because the edit. I'd, I'd only done telly until this point, so I was working on telly timescales. And instead of sort of what I thought 10 or 12 weeks edit, the first edit ended up at 39 weeks. So we ran out of money. Blimey. And then we, well out of money. And then we got um, some Creative Scotland money to help us finish the film. But sadly, that didn't include money for any music. I was a bit naive. So I... Wrote, there's a three record label. It's very much a Scottish film. Sorry to jump about a bit. Yeah, no, it's very much a Scottish film. Everything, it was shot in Scotland, basically. It was, you know, a Scottish man, a Scottish story. It was post-produced in Scotland. Everything, you know, everything we could do, we did in Scotland, in Glasgow, in fact. And so I thought, let's keep it as Scottish as we can, in a sense. Let's see if we can make this film as a Scottish, you know, just purely Scottish. Mm. And um, so I emailed the three record labels that I knew in Scotland, in Glasgow, Electric Honey, uh, Rock Action, and Chemical Underground. Fine labels they are too. Sorry? Fine labels they are too. Yeah, yeah. And literally within seconds of me sending the one to Chemical Underground, um, I got one back from Alan at Chemical. And I thought, I thought no, it can't be. Because, uh, as, as I understood it, he ran Chemical Underground. And he was the lead singer and the driving force behind the Delgados. Some of you might remember from the 90s as a, you know, a, a band with a, a cyclist name sort of thing. I thought, no, no. So anyway, we, we got into a discussion about it. And he, Alan Woodward, um, for those of you who don't know, turned out to be a huge, huge fan of Graham's. And I said, I can't pay you. I was expecting, the reason I wrote to the labels was I was expecting, I was hope, you know, expecting or hoping that you might let me showcase some of your music, um, through the film and do it that way so there was a benefit for you. He said, no, no, I want to write it. I want to score the soundtrack. I said, but I, I can't pay that sort of money, that sort of time, and for you. And he said, no, 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 I want to do it for Graham. He said, you know, I've been a fan since, you know, since I first heard about him, since I first saw him, listened to him and things. So he, he wrote the music, and it's his tribute to, to Graham. Um, I mean, I guess, I guess for those who don't know, obviously, the Delgados was named after the cyclist Pedro Delgado. Yeah. And the first two albums were references to cycles. You've got Domestique yeah. and you've got Peloton. So, yeah. it's, I mean, it's a wonderful bit of synergy, isn't it? That... Oh, perfect, perfect. 
So how did you? What was the process there then between you and you and Alan Woodward to to, uh, to Did you just leave him to it and say more, you know more or less? Because I thought if a, if you ask somebody like him to do it and he volunteers to do it and you can't pay him to do it, yeah, and he wants to do it for his reason, um, it was very much a case of here are the pictures, these are the sequences that we're looking at. I mean, a lot of it was done out of order, out of sync, you know, if a, if, a, if a sequence was ready, we'd send it to him so he could look at it, get ideas from it, um, and and do all of that sort of thing. So there was a real, and he'd never done a score before, you know, so he was learning how to do scores and how to use it, you know, use his talents and skills in, in, a, in a bigger setting in a way. Yeah. And so the, it was very much we'd send stuff to him. And I was very much of the impression that I wanted, I wanted him to, to enjoy doing it and have fun doing it and get as much out of it as I got out of filming it and, you know, recording it and all that sort of thing. Mm. So it, it, I thought if I start going heavy, I want this and I want that and I want the other, then it's not going, you know, he's not going to enjoy it. It's not going to have that sort of energy and that amount of fun from it. Mm. And so that went, we, we went down that road completely really until almost until the very, very end. And then we brought in part of Creative Scotland funding it. They said we had to bring in a narrative, drama feature film editor prior to that we'd used a, a tv documentary editor okay. and and so we had to bring in a narrative feature film editor for the for the lay person listening dave do you want, do you want to tell us what what would you say uh because obviously you're drawing on your own skill sets there bringing in a tv documentarian editor so what was it that somebody with a with a film i sees that maybe a tv i isn't going to see with what you've ended up with this, all right, this isn't me, but this was, this was a major piece of learning. Yeah, we, yeah, were, yeah. we were hugely, hugely fortunate to get a, a film editor called Colin Mooney, okay. who's probably Scotland's top feature film editor. Right. Um, and I'm sitting there in awe watching him work and how he works, and it was a completely new experience to me. I mean, phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal guy. And... Just to give people a perspective there, how long have you worked in TV for? <laughs> Don't. Stuff it. You're not supposed to ask questions like that. No, 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 I'm, I'm just saying, but you're, obviously your, your skills are in TV and people might not think that, the, and they're good skills, but people might not think that film is a, is a leap into something like the, like, like the unknown as it would be. Yeah, okay. Of, that's all I'm saying. Um, it's not to embarrass you, Dave. Sorry. All right. Well, put, put it like this. Um... Oh, God. 20 plus, uh, let's say 20 plus years. And we'll oh, and the rest, yes, lovely. Thank yeah. you, that'll do nicely. <laughs> but what I'm saying is, by, by bringing that up, I'm not, like I say, it's not yeah. to embarrass you, it's to say that you've got some key skills that are, are you know, a part of TV documentary stuff that we've we've seen and enjoyed, lot, you know, in lot, lot over the years, but yet all those skills didn't prepare you for what Colin was about to do with your film. Yeah. No, he, Colin was absolutely brilliant. I mean, that's a whole sort of workshop in itself, the difference. Mm. But his main thing and the way he, he did it and this, when you listen to this, he said, look, they're two totally different mediums. 
I looked at him, so, uh, and, and he said, television is passive. It's a passive relationship with the viewer. You, you know, it's on in the corner. It's running. You're having your tea. You're doing the breakfast. You know, you may be doing the ironing or the washing. You're walking through the room. You know, it's a completely passive relationship. When you make a film, it's an active relationship. It's an active audience. The audience have made the decision to go and buy a ticket, to come in out of the beautiful sunshine like you did on Saturday in Hackney, yeah. and go and sit in a dark room to watch something. You've got to allow them to enjoy that and interact with the film. You can't tell them everything. You can't give them everything. They want to be part of it and go into it and come out of it how they want to, mm. not just how you want them to. And so it's a completely different format. It's a completely different thing. And when you put a film, then when you put a film on television, because it's a film on television, people will react to that film on television in a similar sort of way as, as they would to watching it in the cinema. Far different to the way they will react to watching a piece of TV or a piece of factual stuff on TV. Does that come over clearly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, because essentially, okay. essentially if, you, if we think about TV in a very basic form, it, it constantly, whether it be drama or factual programming, it will constantly recycle what it's about. So you'll get to a point and it will remind you what you're actually watching and why, whereas a film doesn't have that responsibility. A film is starting at the beginning, it's going to take you through a, a story of some sort, and it'll resolve itself at the end, but it has no responsibility to keep reminding you why you're watching, whereas TV, certainly drama, will constantly have people telling you why, why and what's happening, whereas a film doesn't have that. A film yeah. relies on the fact that you're going to watch the 90, 100 minutes of it. Yeah, I mean, it, that's really true. I mean, years ago, it's not quite so bad now, but years ago there was a dictum in the BBC, certainly, where it was, tell me what I'm going to see, show me what you what I'm going to see, tell me what I've just seen. Mm. Yeah. Now, in film, that is yeah. complete anathema, which for me is wonderful. Well, I was going to say, and one of the things that, uh, I, again, I think maybe it was because I was seen it on the big screen, but I think it was already sort of swimming around my head. I think one of the things, having that, that freedom to breathe, plus the sort of, um, you know, so the edit plus, plus Alan's soundtrack of, of what you've got is, there are certain images where you feel that, that, that what you're showing us is, and this is my interpretation, you, you can tell me I'm, I'm wrong or I'm right, um, uh, but it's, it's your, what we're seeing is like a metaphor for, for, for Graham's vulnerability. It's sort of, you know, he's, he's talking about mental illness and stuff, and then you're watching him in what looks like a bloody coffin on two wheels in the pouring rain on Prestwick Airport field going nowhere fast, and you're wondering how the hell this is linked to breaking any world records. Yep. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, no, I mean... It, <laughs> If we'd written it, it I mean, you, you're a scriptwriter, so you yeah. know this. You, you, you have to, if, if you'd written it, you couldn't, we couldn't have done it. People no. wouldn't have believed it. And the things that were happening on that journey were just 
so bizarre and so weird and so difficult that it, that I I I know. And at one point we were looking for different log lines for the film. Mm. And at one point I, I I had stranger than fiction because you know if it, if you'd written it you couldn't do it. But it is. We worked really really hard in the filming, sizing shots, looking at different you know as much as we could when we were doing it. And we always had this in the back of our mind: where can we bring these layers, and and how can we give the audience a completely full picture? I I, I didn't want to make a, a campaigning film about mental health. I didn't want to make a banging banging film about you know the joy of work or the celebration of work and things like that. And I, I wanted people. People to go out to the cinema with a sense of enjoyment that they that they'd really enjoyed it and that the you know that they'd had everything and then to think about it two three four five days later maybe even weeks later mm. to think oh bloody hell is that what they were saying do, do you know what I mean I think oh, if, no, sure. if, if you if you bang people over the head the whole time they just get bored and they forget about it when they go out to the cinema. Whereas if, if you if you've given them a good time and they've enjoyed what they've watched, and they you know th- there's been some ups and downs and laughs and colour and shape and things, uh, then they'll maybe think about it afterwards. No, and I think I think that's it's almost like that's the as the, as the joke you know the joke goes about the devil. The greatest trick is you know making you believe it it, it doesn't exist or whatever. But it's like you 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 sneak in. All this stuff, obviously, you don't sneak it in because you've purposely done it. But for me, as a viewer, I'm not. I'm not going. I'm watching this. I'm watching that. It's only after the fact, or, or, or as as I reflect on it, that I begin to go, "Oh yeah, no, this was this was this is direct." Even though it doesn't fit, it didn't feel like it at the time. It felt like, like certainly the the, the, Pre- the Presswick side of it was like, "Oh look, that's part of the process, isn't it?" Obviously, it has to test it. But then when you watch that sequence. You're going. This is this is a this is a moment of absolute despair, and you've and we've already learned that he's suffered from mental health illness, and anxiety is not a good thing for him. So you're thinking to yourself as a viewer, how the hell is he coping with this? What? Where's he going to go from here? You're not thinking naturally he'll uh, he'll go and break the world record, but you're kind of thinking to yourself, there's a real person here who's struggling with the challenge because it's like he's challenging with a the financial restraints he puts on himself and or is put on him because he can't get money. There is, there is B, his own mental fragility, which he is, he is, and as he said, the Q and A in, in, in Hackney, you know, it, every day is the, is the day he's living kind of thing, you know, and that's, I guess that is, you know, I've not, I've not been someone that's been close to suicide, never mind twice. So I imagine that being alive is an amazing thing when you, when you've come that close before. And then in the story you tell, or the story you're documenting, he has his. He, he has something which has got nothing to do with his financial restraints or his mental health. He has. He has a an injury in his leg that involves a serious operation that stops him physically cycling in the run up to the test. I mean, they're, they're just amazing things. And and I, and I wondered whether or not you, at any point, wanted to take him to one side or anybody involved and go, look, should we just wait another year for this? Is this kind of? Did you did you ever was you ever tempted to sort of? <coughs> it. It was all down to him, right. seriously. And the 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 thing about um, Graham is, 
he's very when he gets something in his head he's very single minded mm. and he, you know we we touch on it a little bit in the film about his obsessive compulsiveness and mm. and things like that certainly his obsessive behavior and how he has to do things and i think if we'd felt um, I don't know, it's difficult. You see, this is the problem with documentary, yeah. is, you know, and one of the things, because it was just me and him, I didn't want to feel as though I'd gone native. I didn't want to go native, in, in a sense, and I didn't want to, that sense of embeddedness. I, I wanted to still have the clear view and do it warts and all as well, if you if you see what I mean. So is that is that you remaining sort of dispa a dispassionate observer? Yeah. Okay, and, okay. and the and, and and to have a sort of integrity well not a sort of to have an integrity to it where the film wasn't driving him, you know, he was yeah. driving what he was doing was driving the film, if you see what I mean. Um and so it was it it was a really difficult situation, and do you know what I think? Thinking back about it, it never I never got to that point. There were points where I thought it wouldn't happen, mm. you know, where I thought he would just pull out and he would just say that isn't going to happen. I mean, the the Presswick night is a is a night in question. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I came away from there and I thought this isn't going to happen. You know, I, I, that's, you know, all this film and time down the Swanee sort of thing. Hmm. Um, and then you, you, you know, you, you ring up a, the following day and say, how are you feeling? Oh, come down, come down. Oh, really? Uh, you know, um, and, uh, and so, you know, it goes like that, but I, yeah, there was never a there was never a case of me saying to to I don't think so of me saying to Graham, um, I don't think you should do it. I you know I think you should pull out. I think you, you know I think your legs too bad or your head's too bad or you know whatever. Mm. It's too much pressure because then you would have it would have it would have changed the yeah it would have changed the integrity of the film. It would have. You know, you would have, I, I would have then been a motivator. I mean, and, and you know, in, in documentary, there, in many ways, there are lots of motivators in a, in a sense. They, they might disagree with me, but as soon as you put yourself in a film, hmm. um, you know, vis-a-vis -vis Michael Moore or Nick Broomfield or so, and as soon as you become a driving force in the film, then you be, to my mind, you become the motivator, and I want to be a facilitator to tell people stories. And so it, it's, a, it's, it's a really difficult line to tread. And I was talking to a lady a few weeks ago who said documentary's not got any ethics. It's not like um, social anthropology, which has a written list of ethics that you have to do. Mm. Um, and, and she said documentary's not like that. And I was... I was most affronted by it because <laughs> I think um, I think a lot, an awful lot of us um, have real serious uh, set of ethics where we want to give the audience what we've seen, and if we start putting ourselves in there, we're not doing that. I know the camera being in there does that in, to some extent, but I think people accept that. 
And the, I think what we're trying to do is be as close as we can to being the eye of the person. So I like to think that, if you will, I'm seeing what Stuart Wright would see if he was with Graham. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting comparison, but I, 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 the, the, the idea of the anthropologist and, and, the, uh, and the documentarian, but I think the very fact that the, the anthropologists need a set of ethics tells you more about anthropology than it does about documentarians lacking it. Yeah. Um, I don't know about you. Yeah, possibly, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> nice of you to see it that way. Well, if you think about it, these are the things. Yeah, no, it's true, it's true. You know, who, who said we needed a reason? I mean, the, the, we, we, we know that the camera lies and we know the camera tells the truth. And that's a brilliant, that's, that's, about, that's about the audience understanding their role in the process. If yeah. I read a report by a scientist about what they found out about a tribe, I'm only getting that, I'm getting that point of view, aren't I? Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. You know, not to simplify it too much and no. defend our great arts, but uh, <laughs> yeah, that's my point of view on it. Um, yeah. On a practical side... Because um, you use a, you source a lot of um, archive material to make, help tell the story. Yeah. Um, how 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 accessible and affordable was that in terms of you know the scope of your documentary? It was a nightmare, an okay. absolute nightmare. Some of it we some of it we were we were lucky with. Um, it was from Ina in France, the the French ones. Well, this is this is this is another wonderful little aside to Graham and his his fame in a sense. Yeah. UK film libraries and film archives have got virtually nothing of him. You're kidding. Yeah. They they've got virtually nothing. Um, you'd be lucky if you, you know, if you go through a search for any of them and you get much more than a page. Yeah. Wow. So you, but then you go to Ina in France and I can't remember the, the actual full title. They have, is it, I don't think I'm wrong in saying they've got 70 odd pages. Wow. wow. You know, of different bits of Graham doing different things in different places with different you know, different subjects. And that's how, you know, I mean, this guy, push, when he broke the world record the first time in Hamar, uh, in Norway, it was while the Tour de France was on. And the newspaper, Le Keep, the big French sports newspaper, owns, the same people who own that, own the Tour de France. Mm. And Graham pushed the Tour de France off the front page. It was the front page of the Le Keep was just Graham. Bloody hell. And and just this one and it's a big it was a big broadsheet, you know, the equivalent to the old Times or you know, uh, something like that. That yeah, sort yeah, yeah, yeah. of page. and it's amazing. And he's got this wonderful chroma of, of, of that they gave him, Le Keep gave him. And they're still the French are still in many ways besotted with him. I, the, um, uh, a guy from Le Keep came over to interview him about his attempt and, and I did an interview with the journalist and that's why I feel quite happy to to have all the stuff about drugs in there because he said, look, what he's saying is so true. Um, nobody's going to Nobody's going to come and... Uh, sue you about it but getting back to the getting back to the archive hmm. he um it was a lot of it was really really difficult and some of it we couldn't find 
the um, we couldn't find the production companies, the the people who owned the original footage. So we've got this long chain of, um, if you will, of due process of trying to find it, and in the end went to the commentators who are still around and who we recognise. They couldn't remember who they'd done it for. Right. Um, and, and so they went back through their records and couldn't find out who they'd done it for. So we got, we asked them if we could use their voices. And that was as close as it was. So it's, it's a combination. And, and, and the, but as you well know, the archive is, uh, is extortionate. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just it's such a massive, massive struggle to be able to find a way to pay for it, even stills. And, um, why, why does fair use not apply? Because it's ownership and, uh, you, you know, you, you, you can't use it because it's not news and you, you or it's, we're not reviewing something. And, you know, there's all sorts of legalities around, um, around archive. Well, then one last question for you then, because I think it, you, you're hinting at it with, with what you were, you were talking about with uh, conversations with the French journalist is that in and amongst the story of a man building a human powered vehicle to break a world record, the story breaks that Lance Armstrong has admitted drug taking. And with that admittance comes a whole kind of domino effect of the, the sport of cycling, admitting that drugs are endemic, something that directly affected Graham back when he was, in the prime of his cycling life. And while it's not necessarily a part, it's not an important part of getting the human powered vehicle record. It's a brilliant moment that you've, you've, you've sort of been able to capture, which is, is a, while, while it doesn't change the 20 years that he hasn't been recognized as a professional cyclist who raced in the Tour of France, it felt like a real moment of vindication for, for his own principles that he, that he held. He, it, arguably, he morally held cycling higher than the people that run the sport. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, 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 it was really strange getting to that point because we'd been filming for eight or nine months by then, maybe yeah. even slightly longer. Mm. And I talked to him, you know, several times about it. <clears throat> and he would never really open up about it. He'd never really come clean about it. And then to watch him in that moment afterwards and to see on his face, and I hope I've captured it well enough, mm. the, the, if you will, the justification and... In a, in a sense, the resentment that you know he allowed to come out for a few for a few minutes, mm. and he allowed to sort of surface that you know he could. I mean, I don't think he would ever have wanted the big fast cars and the massive house and the swimming pools and things like that. Mm. You know, I don't think he's that sort of person. But because he wouldn't take drugs, that's what he missed out on. And yeah. he was in this tiny, tiny council flat in Saltcoats. Yeah. And, you know, uh, and, and, and for a moment, I think we see the, his, his resentment there. And I think what he did, and last night he told the story about his sons um, actually coming to him afterwards and saying, 
dad, even though you didn't have that and that meant we didn't have all that money and things like that, we're still really proud of you that you didn't take drugs and you you were the clean rider. That's amazing. I mean, it's it's also quite there's no irony really, but but certainly coincidental given your films out there now that other sports are now mushrooming out of the shadows, revealing that maybe drugs is influencing the high performers in areas that we thought were safe. I mean, I notice on the radio Stan Collymore's ranting and raving about the state of what might be wrong with football now, uh-huh. which is a sport you always thought was quite sacred and, and away from all that. Yeah. Um, no, I, I, I think, um, sadly, I, I think wherever there's the possibility of slight improvement and the millions and millions of, well, not millions anymore, the billions of pounds that are being made by, you know, if you will, other people out of sport, you know, for your argument's sake, the money that, Sky are making out of sport mm. um, uh, and business models like that, then understandably, not acceptably, and I'm, I'm not accepting it and I'm not condoning it at all, but you can certainly see why people um, would be pushed to go down that road. Of oh, no, no, there's a motivation factor which is hard yeah. to ignore. It's like if I, can, yeah. if I can earn three million for the next two years... Yeah, and I've got to get one percent more than the person that doesn't get three million. Then yeah. what do I do to get the one percent? Would yeah. is the binary is sadly the binary question, <clears throat> um, you know? And and will it, and then the second one is will I get caught? And clearly, for decades, not getting caught has been a relative, you know, relatively yeah. easy. Whereas I think now technology and biology and medicine has sort of said actually we can see this now. So maybe yeah. there, there's a, you know. Graham paid a horrible price in terms of his professional cycling career in the sense that he couldn't do it. And I've, I've, I, I worked with a guy who was on the brink of becoming a professional cyclist. And, and he, he, I mean, he described it being that he said you would train in the Alps with people and they would be gradually being doped up in terms of what was happening. And you would regularly beat them. And then come the season, their preparation, they would whoop you. Even though you were, you were, you were beating them in the training field. Yeah. Because their prep had been about building and building and building to the season, using the help of whatever it is that you use, it made a difference. So, you know, you said it was hard for me to live with, and I wasn't, and not, not that it's not the same kind of example as Graham, but it's very similar. He said, I wasn't prepared to do it, so I ended up not becoming a professional cyclist because mm. I didn't know what it would do to my body, which is, you know, the other side of it. Well, this, the, I, I, I want to ask one more question before, before we finish. Um, and it's and you've hinted at a lot of this throughout this conversation because obviously having come from TV, you've kind of you kind of walked into film with I guess I guess a combination of eyes open and eyes shut. So um, what what do, what do you think for you has been the major difference between making the TV stuff you've you've made and making this movie? The learning curve um, of going into something completely different mm. is phenomenal and fabulous and fantastic. There was, last night, well, it's the same everywhere, Yeah. but especially last night, we were in the Duke of York cinema in Brighton. Now, this 
has been a cinema since 1910. Right. It's the oldest, longest-running, continuous cinema in the UK. It holds maybe 200 and some, and there were 170-odd-some people in the cinema last night at half-past six on a Monday night. Yeah. And... Oh, God. I'm, I'm sorry. Um... I felt tiny and very humble that people were coming out to watch a film I'd made. Mm. And, and, and watching and listening to the audiences in the different cinemas that we go to, you become really, really aware of the audience. And there's, almost, there's an interaction, I think, between you and the audience, whereas telly you you make it you give it to somebody they they send it out into the ether and it's over and done with and <laughs> do, do you know what i mean no it, no no totally, you you're making it, it very real actually about the it, way you're talking about it it is it's just so completely different and you know yes in telly we're always taught to think about the audience and 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 to go with the audience and everything but the reality of it is the vast majority of TV commissioners now are basically five people who talk to each other in the centre of London and, in reality, never get out. They don't have time to get out because they're so busy dealing with the politics and the, and the trouble of everything yeah. and, you know, whether they'll have jobs tomorrow. Um, but, they, you know, they... They, they, they. In reality, they don't get out to meet the audience and to see the audience and to feel the audience. And I mean, last night, I hope the man, if he hears this, won't mind. This huge guy, with he had an ironmonger shop in his face. Yeah, mm. so much metalwork and piercings and things like that it was unreal came up to me and I'm, I, I'm stood outside the cinema afterwards you know sort of and, and slightly nervous and everything town I don't know area I don't know and this guy's walking towards me I'm thinking oh Christ and then he just sticks his hand out and he said thank you so so much for making that film it was just amazing and you go oh Christ what have I done do, do, do you know what I mean? I'm a, no, no, totally. Yeah, no, it's and and it's it, it it's it's just so different, and I, I, I'm so lucky and so privileged and so, well, you know, so many things have come together to make me, well, what I think is the luckiest person on earth at the moment. Well, I've got to say, I mean, because I think you said, I mean, when we, when we were talking before the screening at Hackney, you you did say that you know making a documentary is is technically, you know, relatively easy, you know, given that you've you've accrued the equipment yourself anyway. So the, the physical means of making a documentary is not hard. But finding an audience for a film is is a dark art, isn't it? And I suppose that reward, as tiny as it is of just of, of the one person coming up to you and going, Thank you for your film, but then being in a cinema full of two hundred people, laughing at the funny bits and applauding at the end. I guess I guess it's kind of it sounds to me like you, you've you've been sort of put back in touch with the audience that watch your stuff, as opposed to the process of making stuff to be watched. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And it, it, it's I'm I'm not sure 
how best to use it and you know how best <laughs> to deal with it next next time out sort of thing mm. but it is certainly something that you i i think is now is so is is so totally totally important and starting to you know starting to understand the process of of getting films out there and you know or getting your work out there getting your work to an audience so they can enjoy it Right. Well, uh, in the show notes, I'll put I'll put a link to the screenings as I did with the Graham's podcast. Thank you. Um, is there is there plans for like VOD or DVD releases, or is it going out to festivals around the world? What's the <coughs> What's the plan beyond these shows? Um, well, we're we're still working on the the plan beyond these shows. Yeah. Um, but VOD. Um, We've just done a deal with a company called Under the Milky Way, right. who will who, an, who are an aggregator, who will be. I think they're getting it onto iTunes and Amazon and those sort of platforms. You can't do that as an individual anymore. You've got no, to no, go through. So, yeah. Yeah. You've got to go through an aggregator, and they want to do that, and they're taking it to iTunes and such like on June the. 13th, I think that goes. Brilliant. And then one of the things that we really want to do, and we're working on at the moment, is a DVD extras for the people who really do want to know how what the pressure Graham puts into the tyres and what solder he uses and, you know, what type of metal tube it was and things like that. Sure, so, sure, sure. So, so we are going to do... Uh, and I'm not being rude or, or to anybody when I say this, but we are going to do an Anaraki Geek uh, extras DVD as well for for people who want to know all of that. Well, I, I mean, I saw him holding court with people around Beastie, the the bike that he did the record on, and you know, people are in awe of of what he does and, and how he does it. So I imagine that there's a there's a thirst for that knowledge. Yeah, for the people that are into him, and plus also the Alan Woodward soundtrack is available on vinyl, isn't it as well? Oh yes, yeah. sorry, we should have said that. No, it's the, okay. That and that is all of that goes to goes to Alan um, because that's that's I, I tried to persuade him. It took me a long time to persuade him to release it, mm. and just as a, 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 a as a, an album. And it, it was, it, for me, it was a way of saying thank you so much, but anything we can do with the film to help you get something back for the, the inordinate amount of time and effort you put into it. Um, so that was trying to, trying to do that with the, with the soundtrack. And so he's released it on vinyl and I think it looks wonderful. It does. And he's made a wonderful, wonderful chemical, have made a wonderful job of it. Brilliant. Well, look, thanks for spending some time with us on Britflix to talk about Battle Mountain. Thank you for asking. Hey, my pleasure, my pleasure. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off 
my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.